invite you to Luke chapter 9. In your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. remote village on the other side of the world, picture on this Mother's Day, an inquisitive young child playing on the banks of a muddy river near where her mother is washing clothes. Mama, who is Jesus? I don't know, child. Where did you hear that strange name? On a sun-baked sidewalk in a busy Middle Eastern street market, another child tugs on his mother's robe. Mommy, who is Jesus? Busily picking through a display of fresh vegetables, his mother answered, Jesus was one of Allah's prophets who lived before the greatest prophet, Muhammad. Why do you ask? Across the ocean, in an affluent home, another child bounds into the kitchen after school and says, Mom, who is Jesus? Well, hello to you too, dear. Jesus? Let's see. Well, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who lived a long time ago, honey. Mom, Billy told me that Jesus is God. Is that really true? Jesus never claimed to be God sweetheart. What happened was that his followers wrote some stories about him, and as they wrote those stories, they began to tell them almost like fantasies and fairy tales, and after a while, some of his followers believed that Jesus was God, but no, not really. Not every child in this world will, of course, ask this question so pointedly to their mother, but I think that every mother on earth will answer that question one way or another. And I ask to mothers, particularly on this day, Mom, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? What answer are you daily giving to that question by the way that you live, by what you say, by the priorities of your life? Who is Jesus to you? It is that question that looms so very large in the mind of Luke as he writes this gospel account to Theophilus. Remember in Luke chapter 8, we have seen that Jesus is Lord over the natural realm as He stills the storm. And notice chapter 8 and verse 25, after that stilling. In fear and amazement, the disciples asked one another, Who is this? We've seen that Jesus is Lord over the supernatural realm as He casts out a legion of demons. He is Lord over illness and death as He heals a woman and raises a dead daughter. He is Lord over creation as He feeds 5,000 people. And notice chapter 9 now, verses 7 and 8. In that context we read, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. There were a lot of little children in Israel at this time coming up to their mother and saying, Mommy, who is Jesus? John the Baptist's son 
has come back to life. My girl, one of the prophets, apparently lives again. Who is Jesus, is what Luke wants us to consider. It's very interesting at this point, this is made so clear to us by the very way that Luke puts the account together. We come today to Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, which takes place at Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north, due north of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Between the feeding of the 5,000 outside of Bethsaida and the scene in verse 18, Mark records seven key events in Christ's ministry. Luke skips over all of those events in order to come right back here to this question of who is Jesus. The true identity of Jesus Christ is crucial to Luke, and he wants us to see that. Who is Jesus in the section of Scripture before us this morning? We find Jesus identified, first of all, by Peter's confession, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? The whole traveling team of Jesus, his 12 disciples, probably a number of others that come along with him according to chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, they all have stopped for prayer. Breaking from his private prayers, Jesus asked his disciples about the latest opinion polls. Who are people saying that I am? Verse 19, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. We've just noticed that in chapter 9, verses 7 through 8, haven't we? Very same answers. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, someone has come back to life, that's the only answer for the things that Jesus is doing. Now, Luke hasn't forgotten that he's already brought that point up in chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. And Jesus is not clueless as to the answer to that question. He's going somewhere with this question. Where he's going is verse 20. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus looks right into their eyes. You have told me who others believe that you are, but you, who do you say that I am? The answer comes there at the middle of verse 20. Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. You are, says Peter, the long-prophesied Messiah, the prophesied Messiah that God promised would come and redeem Israel. After all that he had seen and heard, Peter draws the right conclusion and offers this first confession in behalf of the disciples. Does Jesus compliment Peter at this point? It's obviously not here in the text, and Luke pairs it down quite dramatically at this point. But does Jesus compliment Peter here? Good job, Peter. You've seen what's been going on, and you came to the right conclusion. You're a cut above the masses. No, of course, as Matthew records in 1617, Jesus tells Peter that this is a gift. This is a gift from God to see who Jesus is. And that is true for us as well. Who is Jesus to you? You realize that in a very significant sense, that is a gift to know who he is. Unless God opens your blind eyes, you will never know the truth 
about Jesus. And if he does open your eyes to that truth, you will come to know, not as one said, a creed, you will come to know a person. There's something very good, I think, about us from time to time reciting a creed to remember in succinct form the theology to which we hold. But we must never say as a church that we believe simply in a creed. We know a person. We have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what is crucial for each of us. You are the Christ, says Peter, the Son of the living God, as Matthew records it. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Which seems like a very strange word of instruction. The disciples have been preaching the kingdom of God, but they have not, in fact, been saying that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus says, I want you to wait on that message. Don't say it right now. I think, first of all, probably because to declare yourself king in Israel would be a capital crime. It would be considered high treason against Rome. It would subject Jesus to execution as a seditionist. Don't tell anyone this truth to which you have arrived. But secondly, Jesus had not yet suffered. He had not risen from the dead. He had yet to prove that He, in fact, was Messiah. It was not simply the miracles that would prove Him to be Messiah. It was His resurrection from the dead, and that had not yet happened. Wait on this truth. I think thirdly, the people are not ready for this truth. As it melds into that second point, the third is that they are not ready for it. Even the disciples would not absorb the message of a suffering Messiah until his crucifixion, as Bach puts it, forced its reality upon them. They would hear of the death of Jesus. They would never come to receive it until after the event. So Jesus wisely, and in the Greek text, firmly, instructs them not to pass on this truth. No one is ready for it yet, but it is the truth. Peter is right. Jesus is the long-prophesied Messiah. But Jesus now begins to bend his disciples' minds to realize a shocking truth about Messiah. He is identified here in Peter's confession. He is secondly identified in Jesus' own teaching about who he is, beginning at verse 22. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus' teaching here concerning the future identifies who he is as Messiah. The disciples, I'm sure, are stunned. Come on, Jesus, quit talking about this death thing. You see the crowds. They're welcoming you everywhere. In fact, Jesus, we can't even get away from them. And you're talking about them rejecting you and death. What is this discussion? You have stilled the storm. You have raised the dead. By this point in his ministry, he had walked on water. They've seen all of these things. And another account says that, in fact, Peter rebukes Jesus at this point. No, says Jesus, you have to get this. I am a suffering Messiah. I am going to die. I will be rejected. I will be killed. And on the third day, I will be raised to life. This is the Messiah 
they are to embrace. This is who he is. Concerning his teaching, concerning his future, concerning now his followers, his teaching concerning his followers, verse 23 tells us who Jesus is as well. Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a threefold call here to discipleship, a call to follow Jesus, which involves, first of all, self-denial. What has Peter just done? Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ. There is coming a very dark night in the future when Peter is going to, de to deny that Jesus is the Christ. That is what the followers of Jesus need to do to self. We need to deny ourselves. That does not mean to deny myself certain pleasures. I was riding in Chicago in a cab with three airline stewardesses, and one of them said to the others, nonchalant, flipping his head over his shoulder, so what did you give up for Lent? I was trying to hold down my lunch when I heard that question, as if, you know, you, you, I, I gave up bubble gum or something like that. That's self-denial to many Christians, is I give something up for a period of time. That is not what Jesus means by self-denial. He does not mean that I, I deny that I exist. That's not what he means by self-denial. He does not mean self-loathing. I hate myself, now I'm a disciple of Jesus. No. What does he mean? It means that the controlling center is no longer my will. The controlling center is no longer my pleasure, my desires, and my safety. Self ceases to be the controlling influence of my life. To say it another way, it means, says Jesus, to take up your cross daily. When Jesus was in his early teens, a man named Judas the Galilean led a rebellion against Rome. He, he, in, in this rebellion... He attacked a Roman armory at a town that was only four miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Except for us, the town was attacked then by Roman soldiers as they put down the rebellion. They burned the city to the ground. They sold its inhabitants into slavery, except for 2,000 of them. And for those 2,000, they lined up crosses along a road and crucified 2,000 people from that town. That's just four miles from where Jesus is living in his early teens. I don't know if Jesus saw that event, but he certainly knew about it. We do not know if Jesus' disciples ever witnessed a Roman crucifixion, but they were meant to be public affairs. And I think it is fairly legitimate for us to surmise that they set their eyes on a crucified victim from time to time there in Rome, perhaps. And they would know then that typically a condemned man was forced to carry one beam of his cross to the place of execution. I remember exactly where I sat two decades ago, two decades plus ago, as a junior in college, coming to terms with what it meant to follow Jesus. 
I'm still coming to terms with it. But I was coming to terms with it at that point in a very unique way in my life. And I remember right where I sat as I had a commentary by Leon Morris on the book of Luke open on my desk. And he said some very obvious and simple words. I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, but they just ignited me. They took root in my heart. I'll never forget where I sat, and I'll never forget that commentary, which is underlined today with these very simple simple words which turned me on my head. Something I think that the disciples and Jesus intuitively understood in that environment. Morris writes this, When a man from one of the villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He'd not be back. That's it. Following Jesus is a one-way journey from which you never return. Marshall describes it so well this way. He says, It is the attitude of self-denial that regards its life in this world as already over. It is the attitude of dying to self and sin which Paul demands. Life is over for the one who's carrying a cross. It's a one-way journey. To follow Jesus is to die. It is to unseat self as the controlling center and orientation of life. It is to sever the roots of self-preservation, the roots of self-promotion, of self-determination, and of self-desire. Positively, it is, verse 23, to follow Him. To follow Jesus means to live as He lived, to be willing to die as He died. It means to deny self and it means to take up your cross and to subject yourself to ridicule and shame from a world that is hostile to the purposes of God. That's the one-way trip. Well, who in their right mind would want to do that? That's just nuts. Jesus says, who in their right mind would not want to do that? If you see the world the way that God sees it, verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? This is not necessarily a call to martyrdom. Jesus is saying, however, grasp life for all it's worth. Squeeze out of it everything you can, and you will lose it. Let go of your life. Set self aside. Yield your all to me, and you will discover what life really is. You have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain when you lay your life down. That's the rationale of this radical call in verse 23. We find further motivation in verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
Anyone ashamed of Jesus and his words will justly receive a corresponding response from Jesus when he returns to earth in glory. As Barclay writes, if we are true to him in time, he will be true to us in eternity. He will not be ashamed. If you follow the suffering Savior, you have to be up for some suffering. This world is paddling in the opposite direction of Jesus, and it loves to hit those who are paddling against the grain, against the flow. Our motivation here, verse 26, is that there is glory at the end. Jesus will come. Jesus will return. And he will not be ashamed of those who are his followers. Now there's a hinge at verse 27, which seems to come out of nowhere, What in the world is Jesus saying here? But he says, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. We do not have the time to do justice to all of the many views, seven basic views and many that flow off of that, as to what Jesus means here. These these views are defended by various scholars and we won't take the time here, but suffice it to say that Jesus does not necessarily claim some will enter the kingdom before they die. He says that they will see it. Seeing it could refer to entering it, but it does not demand that interpretation. Secondly, each of the synoptic writers, each of the three gospel writers, follow this statement with the account of Jesus' transfiguration at verse 28 here in the text. So Jesus may well refer in verse 27 to what follows in verse 28. When he says, some of you living here will see the kingdom of God, you'll not die before you see the kingdom of God, he's very likely referring to what comes here in verse 28. Now there is, frankly, a problem with that. And the problem is, if something's going to happen within about a week, are you going to say to somebody, some of you people are still going to be living next Sunday? be sort of an odd statement for me to make here, wouldn't it, if we talked about next Sunday? Some of you are going to be living here next Sunday, be, be still alive when you come to church next Sunday. Uh, it's a problem to know what Jesus is talking about. And I don't want to be too bold as to say it must be the transfiguration, but I do lean that way, and here's how I think we can understand that. Perhaps Jesus is referring to the Jewish desire to see the kingdom of God before tasting death. This seems to have been a common thought that I want to see the kingdom of God before I taste death. And so Jesus may be using that phrase from a popular thought and saying, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is identified here by Luke in his text, by Peter's confession, and then by Jesus' teaching that he will be a Messiah who dies and that to follow him will be to lay down self and and to pursue him. We now see Jesus identified in what we refer to here as the transfiguration. For very interesting reasons, Luke avoids that term. I think it's because of his readers and how they might have misunderstood it. But we call it the transfiguration here. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, different reckoning between the Jewish orientation and the uh, Hellenistic orientation. And so he says about eight days, where Matthew and Mark say six days. Same thing. He took Peter and John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. We cannot know which mountain this is. Uh, The traditional Mount Tabor is most unlikely as the location. 
somebody here was uh, some years ago talking about a verse out of one of uh, our old hymnals that said, spoke of the Tabor light of old. And we had a good time trying to figure out what that was. The Tabor light of old is a reference here, and often you'll see traditionally it is said to be on Mount Tabor. The problem is that on the top of Mount Tabor was a Roman fortress. And it doesn't seem very likely that, that that's the location here, nor is it very likely along with the itinerary of Jesus here as he is north of Galilee, just coming out of Caesarea Philippi where Peter makes his confession in verse 20. It doesn't really matter to us, of course, because it doesn't matter to God that we know yet uh, as to which mountain this is on. And I suppose that cuts down the tourist travel on the top of that peak wherever it might happen to be in Israel. But he is secluded on this summit. After this, Jesus, after, after Jesus said this, verse 27, I, I think refers back to verse 27. You see that in verse 28. After Jesus said this, said what? Said what he said in verse 27. Some of you are going to see the kingdom of God. So it seems to link together his statement about seeing the kingdom of God and this event which is now to take place. After he said this, he comes to this mountain and he takes Peter, James, and John to apparently its summit where he prays. Once again, seeking solace with God, seeking solitude with the Lord. Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Matthew says that it shone like the sun. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Jesus is here momentarily glorified. His body reflected the glorious light that will characterize his appearance when he returns to reign over his kingdom. For a brief time on that mountain, what will be in the coming kingdom was, and the disciples saw it. A glorious transformation of the body of Jesus. Verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Time does not permit a thorough investigation of why these two Old Testament figures are here. Why they appear with Jesus of all the people that might have appeared. But let me just give you a couple things to think about that are maybe interesting to some. It does seem that Moses' earlier experience on Mount Sinai is a pattern on which this event is based. Do you remember when Moses ascended Sinai? He left the crowds at the bottom of the mountain and he ascended with some others, taking ultimately to the summit of Mount Sinai, Joshua with him. On that mountain, the glory cloud of God descended... Moses' face shone as he saw the glory of God on the mountain and the voice of God spoke from the cloud. There would appear to be a pattern here that is set and that is paralleled by this event in Jesus' life. Him leaving his disciples behind, taking his three, the inner circle, to the top and in fact being glorified here. We will see the cloud and the voice of God to come. But perhaps that is one reason why Moses is here. Perhaps also Deuteronomy 18.18 gives us some clue as there is a prophet that would come like Moses that would lead his people to redemption, which is 
I believe the person of Jesus Christ, the greater Moses is here, who will lead his people on the greater exodus. And Moses comes and talks with Jesus about that. Wow, what a conversation. Now, I, I just can't leave this alone. It's got nothing to do with anything. But do you see, I, this just has hit me. I'm 42 and it hit me for the first time in my life. Moses is in Canaan. You think, you see, he is in Canaan. He couldn't go in to the promised land, but he's in now. That had to be a thrilling moment for him in some respect. Though I would imagine we're probably in the dark and he can't see very much. But here he is now in the promised land talking to Messiah. With them is Elijah. Let's go back to Malachi, the last chapter of the Old Testament, as we consider perhaps why Elijah is here. He was very clearly seen in Jewish thought as the one who would, anticipate, or would, would announce the coming of the kingdom of God. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of, that the, of the Lord comes. And you say, why did all of these people think that Jesus was somebody else? Why did they think he was John the Baptist? Why did they think that he was one of the great prophets? Why did they think he was Elijah? Well, there's good reason for that. When God cut off the revelation of the Old Testament, he left the Jews with this thought in mind. I am going to send Elijah back. And they believed God that Elijah would come. Well, Elijah's here. They don't see him now in this setting. In fact, John the Baptist had come in the pattern of Elijah to announce Messiah's coming. What the Old Testament prophets could not see is that there would be two comings. But John the Baptist had come in the pattern of Elijah. This is why Jesus can say, if you can receive it, Elijah has come. Not Elijah actually the man, but John the Baptist has come in the pattern of Elijah so that we might say Elijah himself has been here to announce the coming of the kingdom. There will be another coming of Elijah which will announce the kingdom at a time that is yet future to us. But perhaps this is why Elijah has been invited to this meeting. But here they are, the great Old Testament prophets, the giver of the law, Moses, and the perhaps greatest prophet of the Old Testament era, Elijah, and they converse with Jesus. About what? Verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. This is one very unfortunate translation before us here. Departure is the Greek word exodus. They came to talk about his exodus, which means departure. But I think it would be good to leave the symbolism there. It is the word exodus. It is a word that draws our attention to what Moses did as he led the children of Israel out of bondage. It refers, I think, to Jesus' death and probably to his resurrection and ascension. As Moses led the exodus out of Egypt, so Jesus would leave this world and provide deliverance from the bondage of sin. Jesus has concluded from his reading of the prophets that he will die. He knows that. Here in the shadows of this remote mountaintop. Moses and Elijah strengthen and confirm Jesus in fulfilling this mission that God has sent him to fulfill. What a poignant discussion this must have been. What a mysterious scene as glorified mortals deliberate with God. Think of it. I don't even want to walk in there 
to wonder what they might have said. But they're talking about the departure, the exodus of Jesus. While James and John and Peter fight off sleep, trying to stay awake. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. The Greek text is nebulous here and could be that they're fighting off sleep or that they've just woken up, but I'm sure that it had to be a pretty concerning scene all of a sudden as they come to these three glorious bodies speaking there on this mountaintop, perhaps at night. And coming awake, they see His glory. I think that, again, is a tie back to verse 27. You will see the kingdom of God. They see it. They visualize it. They see Christ in His glory, standing with Moses and Elijah. Verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter... As they were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Now there's a lot of commentators that like to really put a lot into what Peter's saying and to uh, offer that he might have some great eschatological meaning to his statements here. I, I, I think taking this statement, he didn't know what he was saying, along with Mark's statement that he was afraid and spoke out of fear. I think what we really have here is a man just coming out of sleep and scared half to death and just saying something that really doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't like to make too much out of what Peter is saying here, but he is very confused, very frightened. He does not know what he is saying in any event, but we do see, do we not again, who Jesus is. In Peter's confession, in Jesus' teaching, and now here in Jesus' transfiguration, we must get this. This is who he is. This may not be seen when Jesus is dying on the cross, but this is, this is what was seen on the mountaintop. This is who Jesus is, the glorified and coming King. We find then finally that Jesus is identified by God's declaration at this event. Verse 34, while he was speaking, that is while Peter is talking and saying something that doesn't make any sense, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. The them and the they and the they make this very confusing. Where there was, is the them, the three, the glorious ones? Is it the four, Jesus and the disciples? Is it all six of them? Is the they, probably the disciples, because it speaks of their fear? They were afraid, probably does not refer to Jesus and Elijah and Moses. If it was just Moses and Elijah, probably would say that just those two were afraid. It's very difficult to know who enters the cloud here then, but they enter a cloud. I think it is probable that Jesus and Moses and Elijah enter the cloud and that the disciples are afraid as those three enter the cloud. At any rate, whatever the case, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. Now we know in the Old Testament that when a cloud shows up, it is hiding or shielding the presence of God. He's there. He is apparently here to whisk 
Moses and Elijah away, but he is also here to speak and to say, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. We've looked at what the crowds say about Jesus. Chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Elijah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist. We have seen what Peter thinks about Jesus. He is the Christ of God. But now here God comes and confirms the truth. He speaks and settles the matter. The disciples would never need to worry that their view of Jesus was mistaken. God had spoken. God had supplied their conviction, and now He confirms that conviction. Jesus is the Son of God. If you can give me a couple minutes here before we draw this to close, I think there's something very intriguing in the text that's taking place, and that is why I've lumped together all of these verses, rather than treating the transfiguration separately. What happens in verse 28? I'm sorry, in verse 18 and 20, through 20. What happens there? Let's put the word identification with it, right? Jesus is being identified by Peter's confession. What happens next? Jesus, verse 22, talks about suffering. Identification, suffering. Then Jesus speaks about glory, verse 26. He will come back in glory. The glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now at verse 28, what is the first thing that we see? Verse 29, rather, we see glory. Jesus is glorified. Followed by a discussion of suffering. Jesus will, his exodus, he will depart, he will suffer. Followed then by the word of God in identification. So if you can picture this, in your mind's eye, we have identification, suffering, glory, glory, suffering, identification. This whole section purposely set here by Luke to say to us, you must know who Jesus is. This is what Peter says. He is the Christ of God. And this is what God says at the other end of the section. He is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You remember that section on the parable of the sower? The key was to listen to what he says. Hear this one. He comes from my throne. And so we ask as we consider this section of Scripture, as Luke is very carefully directing us to ask, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus to you who he is to God? Is Jesus to you who he is to God? I mentioned earlier this passage from Leon Morris's commentary that had such a, an effect on me. So riveted my attention at that critical juncture in my life. Along in those same days was a man by the name of C.S. Lewis that I was reading. And this is another passage. Can I read it here when we consider who Jesus is? He says in Mere Christianity... I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
This, says Lewis, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And bringing those two themes together at that point in that juncture of my life, I knew he could only be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that meant I had to take up my cross and follow him. There was no other wise course. There was nothing else to do. So let me say a bit more pointedly than Lewis put it here. If you do not believe Jesus is who God says he is, you are in grave danger. Positioned above you on the throne of the universe is not your picture. Positioned on you above the throne of the universe is the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And here you are on earth casting Jesus in a mold of your own making. That is dangerous to the ultimate degree. You are risking your soul. If Jesus is God, then he owns you. And you are a fool to do anything other than fall before him in utter submission as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who he is. It is utter folly not to follow him. And I ask of those who have come to a place where we have embraced Christ as Savior, what answer are you providing? Not merely in your words, but by your actions, what answer are you providing to the question, who is Jesus? Moms, what message are you sending to your children? By the way that you live, by the way that you talk, by who you are. Who is Jesus Christ? Do they see a mom who is on a one-way journey A mom who has Christ and not self at the core of her being. Do they see in us his image? For all of us, we must ask, who is Jesus to me? What do others see? Wherever you are, 
I call you to follow him. For those that know him not as Savior, you need simply to come and see who he is and what he has done and to receive him as your Savior. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has come into this world to lead an exodus out of it. An exodus of those who have come through saving faith to embrace his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. Come to him today and receive him. And may we all, by his grace, follow him, carrying daily our cross. Not a particular cross to any one of us, but the cross of self-denial, a one-way journey from which we will never return. And when we get to glory, we'll be glad we didn't. Let's follow him. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for this revelation of who he in fact is. And I pray, God, that we would not play at the edges of our understanding of Jesus and make him and mold him into a God that is acceptable to us. But I pray that we would realize this revelation of who he is. Through Peter's confession, through Jesus' teaching, through this word from heaven and his transfiguration, may we settle our minds upon the reality of who Jesus is. And I pray for any that does not know you as personal Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would draw them to that place. For any here that are lost in sin, that you would open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ that they would embrace you by faith alone and depend in, on Christ alone. That God, that we as your people would follow you in purity and in righteousness, denying self, taking up our cross, and in fact living a life that follows you, that follows our Lord Jesus Christ. May, Father, this be our prayer as it ascends to you, and for those who are mothers among us, I just pray uniquely for them now that they might leave from this place committed to demonstrate Christ and to see him for who he is through their lives and through their witness. It is through Jesus that we bring these prayers and lay them at your feet, rejoicing in your goodness to us through him. Amen.